0: I don't know if you missed it, but last Friday was Valentine's Day. (laughs) It is interesting to review the origin, the history of the day, named after Saint Valentine of Rome. And actually, he did have a little to do with the romantic love for which we celebrate the day. He was a priest in Rome who was martyred on February 14th. Think of that the next time you celebrate the day. 269, supposedly for performing secret weddings for Christian soldiers who were forbidden to marry. You see, it was thought that married men did not make good soldiers. Wives and children got in the way. So Emperor Claudius outlawed marriage, hence the secret weddings. The legend says, after performing the ceremony, Valentine cut out paper hearts for these newly married soldiers to be reminded of their commitment. Valentine was later named a saint by Pope Galatius in 496. Yet another legend says that he actually healed the daughter of the judge who had sentenced him to death of her blindness. He then sent a farewell letter to the daughter before his execution. He was beaten to death with clubs. But before her execution and signed it, you guessed it, your Valentine. Today, you can even visit the Basilica of Santa Maria in Rome to see his floral crowned skull. That will give you warm fuzzies on Valentine's Day. I won't recite all the history, but through the years, it has become the romantic day of today, such that in the U.S., it is estimated that 190 million cards are given annually, second only to Christmas, not counting, however, the hundreds of millions exchanged by children at school. Further, with those cards, flowers, chocolates, jewelry, notice how many of those are for ladies, etc., it is estimated the average expenditure per person for that particular day is $136 for a whopping one-day total of $18 billion. It is a commercial boon for the economy. Now, why do we do that? I suppose it gives an annual opportunity to express love for that special someone. Valentine's Day gives us the opportunity to say, Remember on those ones you exchanged at school, I love you, do you love me? Check yes or no. (laughs) Or to say, will you marry me? Or perhaps to say, will you forgive me? You see, we are always trying to figure out relationships, especially the husband-wife relationship. A bit of a mystery. Always trying to figure out marriage. I mean, how do I figure out the, the one who's right for me? Once I have found him or her, how do I convince the person? He's the one, she's the one. Then once we get married, how do I keep him? How do I keep her? Or once we get married, how do I get rid of him if it doesn't work out? We seek answers to those questions from every available source. For example, some children ages 6 to 10 were asked the following questions. How do you decide who to marry? Alan, age age 10, responded, you've got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. (laughs) As I understand it, Alan is still single. (laughs) Kirsten, also age 10, said, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all the way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. (laughs) <laughs> no, maybe that's the way you feel stuck another question what, what is the right age to get married Camille uh, age 10 23 is the best age because you know the person forever by then on the other hand Freddie age 6 said no age is good to get married at you got to be a fool to get married <laughs> One more just because it's funny. How can you tell if two people are married? Derek, A. eight, responded, you might have to guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. <laughs> well, the scripture says much about marriage. By the way, just keep those in mind because a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Scripture says much about marriage, especially since God is the one who designed it. You know that, right? He knows how it should work, even in the midst of our incredible brokenness. And so, for example, we find many so-called household codes in the New Testament by Peter and Paul, for example. We are studying one such code in 1 Peter but we must remember we must remember the context if we simply use first peter as a kind of marriage manual then we're missing it you see he is writing to a group of believers suffering persecution for their faith and he writes to tell them how to live beautiful lives in the midst of such opposition you know that we've been talking about it for weeks for the, This is how you live beautiful lives. For the purpose of making Christ and his gospel attractive. To include two unbelieving husbands. Peter lists three relationships of authority, actually, within which... Those under authority, he addresses the ones under authority, may face rather significant challenge. People and unbelieving governments, we talked about that. Slaves and unbelieving masters, talked about that. Wives and unbelieving husbands. And right in the middle of all of that, Peter gave us Jesus as the example, as one who suffered unjustly, and how we should follow in his steps, Some of you say, doing it, married. (laughs) We arrived today, you see, at the third one. Wives to husbands. And actually, I would submit to you, whether believing or unbelieving, we'll see that. Let's read the text in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. I'm doing six verses today because I didn't want to preach on this topic two weeks in a row. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful. That's actually fearful. And Peter makes a big deal of saying that we don't fear men. We only fear God. So as they observe your chaste and fearful behavior, your fearful understanding of God. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way... In former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You don't need to be afraid of people. You just need to be afraid of God. You see. Disclaimer, you know at Alliance we are committed to the scripture. If it says it, we simply believe it. I know that I understand that there are cultural issues in the Bible. That is, I also understand that there are descriptive and prescriptive elements. What that means is there are some things recorded that describe events as they unfolded. And as we're reading, we need to understand that as you're reading some narrative passages, they're not necessarily prescriptive. In other words, they're not meant to prescribe for us the way that we do things. For example... Speaking of marriage, when Abraham sent his servant Eliezer to get a wife for uh, uh, Isaac, Eliezer ended up giving the prospective bride, Rebecca, a nose ring. That does not mean wedding rings should be replaced with nose rings. Thank the Lord. It does not mean that we should select our wives from among distant relatives. And it does not mean that we should have someone propose to someone else that we have never met. But there are some prescriptive elements of Scripture. That's descriptive. There are prescriptive elements of Scripture which clearly articulate roles and responsibilities, expectations, even commands. Genesis 2, for example tells us of the creation of Adam and Eve. And there are some prescriptive elements in there. One man, one woman for life, for example. How do we know it's prescriptive? Well, for one thing, it speaks generally of the relationship between husbands and wives. And for another, both Paul and, oh, I don't know, Jesus used the passage for their teaching on marriage. So principles in Genesis 2 transcend both time and culture. And so, how do I play this? A couple of weeks ago, I said the Scripture regulates slavery, but God did not invent slavery. It's a human institution that He regulated. But God did design marriage. Not only does He regulate it, He tells us how it works best. All that to say this, we are committed to actually bound to the instruction of Scripture, we're not going to try to dismiss what the Bible says as culturally irrelevant or outdated, archaic, patriarchal society, none of that. As the creator and designer of the marriage relationship, we believe God's principles and commands in scripture concerning husbands and wives are not only binding, but listen, not only binding, but best for our good and for his glory listen, God did not sit in heaven and say, let's see how I can design the marriage relationship to be the most impossible task in the world. A relationship that will be the most dysfunctional and bring the most heartache. And how can I really irritate women? God did not do that. I want you to understand that God has our best in mind. His goal for marriage is that it be, this is going to come as a shock to you, some of you. His goal for marriage is that it be joy-filled, and that it reflect as closely as possible the relationship between Christ and his bride called the church. Remember, that is the foundation. It's a model. So with all that in mind, we arrive at the text, and there are... Listen, there are some principles here that, will help, uh, the, 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 here that will help make these relationships work well. For the glory of Christ, out of our reverence for Christ, listen, to make him and his gospel attractive. There are a number of passages that we could go to. I was tempted to do this today and stretch this into several weeks. I almost lost my mind and did that. But there are several passages to which we can go where Paul says wives, uh, where other writers of Scripture say uh, wives are to submit to their husbands. For example, Ephesians 5, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In Colossians 3, he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. First Peter 3, we just read, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands with respectful or fearful behavior, res- fearful of God. Titus 2, wives are to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that, here's the reason, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. A response of the Christian wife, the redeemed wife, is to submit to the husband's God-ordained loving headship within the home as to the Lord. Now listen, as I get about three quarters of the way through the sermon, you're going to say, can you start nailing some husbands? I will. But in one verse, I'm going to preach a whole message on one verse when I get back from being out of the country. <laughs> in response to the redeemed wife is to submit to the God ordained headship within the home. Failure to do so results in the word of God being dishonored. That's what it says. And what I am going to take just a few minutes. To define what this word "submit" means, because there's some confusion. The word means to su- subject, to subordinate, to be under the authority of another. It was a military term. It was used of the authority an officer had over a subordinate. This is extremely important. The word here is in the middle voice. That's a Greek. Ter- that's a Greek syntax. But it's important. It's in the middle voice, meaning. N- Nowhere are men told to subordinate or subject their wives. Nowhere are men commanded to make their wives obey any more than wives are commanded to make their husbands love them. This is a command, listen, this is a commandment to wives. Wives, you submit yourselves. And so, men, if you leave here today thinking it's your job to make your wives submit, wives you tell me and I'll it's not in my notes it's not what the bible says Peter and Paul tell wives to submit to, to to submit themselves to their husbands in other words the submission is to be a willful voluntary act on the part of the wife to come under the authority and headship of the husband so what then, how does, what does a submission mean? Let's start first with what it does not mean. Lots of confusion. First, submission does not mean putting a husband in the place of Christ. Paul, for example, said, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. In other words, submission to your husband is an act of obedience ultimately to Christ. And it is to mirror your submission to Jesus. That's what we're talking about. Number two, submission does not mean giving up independent thought. That's important. It was important, particularly in this day. The Christian wife should still hear, ponder, understand, and respond to the word of God herself. She is still to be a thinking person. And she is not to abdicate her responsibility to make moral, thoughtful, wise, and godly decisions. You don't have to, men, you do not have to make all the decisions. God gave you a, a, a wife to help you because you needed help. Fact third, we see from 1 Peter, submission does not mean a wife should give up efforts to influence her husband. Peter says wives should try to influence unbelieving husbands to become Christians. Fourth, we see that submission does not mean a wife should give in to every demand of her husband. If he, the principle is the same. There is a higher authority. If he demands something contrary to the clearly revealed word of God, she should respectfully, gently, quietly decline. Fifth, submission does not mean a wife should endure the abuses of her husband. I'd like to preach an entire message on this. I have never counseled a woman to stay at home, in a home, when she is being physically or verbally abused. If she fears for the safety or the safety of her children, she should remove herself from that environment. However, that separation should be for the purpose of discipline and ultimate restoration. That's the purpose. You say, well, what if he never changes? What if the danger is always there? Then she should simply not go home. I have physically removed a man from his home when his family felt abused. Six, submission is not, based, is not based on lesser intelligence or competence. The truth is, we all know, if we were honest, that most of our wives, one each, most of our wives are better suited to the task than we are, which is why God gave them to us. We are not talking about inferiority. We are not talking about superiority. We are talking about loving headship and willful submission. Seventh, last, submission is not inconsistent with equality in Christ. Men and women, husbands and wives, listen, have been equally redeemed and have equal importance and dignity and honor and value before the Lord Jesus Christ. Women are fully created in the image of God. This is simply a matter of function. That's all. So having said what it isn't, what then does submission mean? First, submission is an inner quality of gentleness, comes right from the text, that affirms the leadership of the husband. Let me say it again. The wife willingly submits to the authority and leadership of the husband as the leader of the home within the limits of obedience to Christ it includes a demeanor that honors him as the leader even when you disagree it is an attitude that goes much deeper than mere obedience it is the respectful affirmation of his God-given massive responsibility to lead second I'm just going to comment on this submission acknowledges an authority that is not totally mutual What do I mean? There is a sense in which husbands have an authority that wives do not have. Nowhere are wives, or excuse me, nowhere are husbands told explicitly to submit to their wives. However, in every context in the New Testament where the husband wife relationship is discussed, the wife is commanded to submit to her husband. It is not a cultural issue, it is a biblical issue. Third, We see that submission is to be to your own husbands. Peter does not ask every woman to submit to every man. Nor every male-female relationship requires submission on the part of the woman to the man. Listen, there there is no problem with having a female boss, okay? And you should submit to her. See the sermon two weeks ago. This is not a command for every woman to submit to every man, my wife submits to me graciously and beautifully and to the elders of the church. If you tell her what to do, men, we're going we're gonna to tussle. Finally, as I noted earlier, your submission is to be as to the Lord. In fact, Paul later says, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in Everything You don't get to pick and choose, unless it clearly violates the teaching of the Word of God, the response is that of respectful submission. So with all of that said, what then, how does, the, how does it play out? What does this submission look like? I believe that Peter gives us a description of respectful submission. You know you can hear a pin drop in here. <laughs> I told a few jokes at the beginning. Peter gives us a description of respectful submission in our text today. Notice uh, Peter says, if, if any of them are disobedient to the word, while the, this passage is the passage we use to counsel wives who are married to unbelieving husbands, please understand it applies to you whether you are, uh, whether your husband is a believer or an unbeliever. If he's an unbeliever, it still applies. That's the point. We have before us a description of what godly submission looks like, verses 5 and 6. For in this way, the holy women also used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Description of the submissive wife. We see there are three ways in which wives, women live um, beautiful lives. Number one, she concentrates on living the word, not just Preaching the word. Number two, she accentuates the internals, not just the externals. And number three, she emulates the holy women of the past, not the unholy women of the present. I'm going to move very quickly. Again, we note the response of the wife to the husband is irrespective of the husband's spiritual condition. Here, if the husband is an unbeliever, it does not excuse the wife from her responsibility to submit and demonstrate that in these ways. Why? For the purpose of making the gospel attractive. You must understand. In the culture Peter addresses, it was expected. First, I mean, this was written out in other uh, uh, secular household codes. The wife was to have no friends, only his. The wife was to worship the God of her husband. So were the slaves, by the way. So for her to commit to Christ without her husband doing so, was scandalous. And so Peter is simply trying to preserve the gospel and its impact. Notice he does not subvert the family order, he, he, but he does address wives as he addressed slaves in the last, uh, a couple of weeks ago. That also would have been scandalous. Wives were thought incapable of moral instruction. And here we find Peter doing it. What is interesting is women back then, when the Bible was written, would have celebrated what Peter said, because Peter actually spoke to women. So did Jesus, by the way. Remember when he went to the woman of the well and had the conversation? The disciples were shocked. Today, conversely, people are offended for the opposite reason. They're offended by this passage. Please understand, Peter was going against the status quo. He was elevating women, and well, we should. So first, you are to live the word before him, not preach the word to him. There's obviously both a positive and negative aspect to this principle. Let's start with a negative. You are not to preach the word to him. What does that mean? This is a big one. When your husband is disobedient to the word, if you've got one who's disobedient... My wife does. When your husband is disobedient to the word, what is the first thing you want to do? You want to point it out to him repeatedly until he gets it. You have the idea that if he is wrong, if you just make him aware of it, he'll change. And if he does not change the first time, you will tell him again and again until he does. Peter here says, don't preach the word, and I would add, because this is the implication, as a battering ram... Instead, the positive side of the command is live the word before him. Instead of preaching the word, live the word. If he isn't doing what is right, you make sure that you do. Your life will be an example to him. Peter says they will be changed as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your pure and fearful way of life. That's how they can be changed. I know that's very easy for me to say. I mean, I'm a man and very hard to do. Everything in you, especially as you still deal with your own sin, wants to rise up and read him the Riot act, in a godly way, of course. You've got chapter and verse, and it is your job to set him straight. It is your job to set him straight. But you've got to do it the right way. Instead of preaching chapter and verse, you live chapter and verse before him. And as you live it before him, allow the Spirit of God to take your living epistle and change his life. And you say, I know what your question is. Are you saying there is never a time when I, as a wife, should confront my husband? Of course not. I'm not saying that. I believe in a godly home. And I'm going to suspect that most in this room are somewhat godly homes where where husband and wife both want to live out the truths and principles of the Word of God. I assume that's why you're here. If that is true, your husband will want you. He will even invite you and invite you to hold him accountable to biblical truth right men shake your head yes yes we want our wives they are partners in ministry they are partners in this thing called the christian life we want them to hold us accountable but what if he doesn't want you to hold him accountable then you don't you simply live it but again that does not mean that you never speak of course you do But we must do so graciously. That brings us to our second point. The submissive wife is to accentuate the internals, not accentuate the internals, not the externals. Notice the word merely in verse 3 is italicized. That means it is not in the original text. It was provided by the translators for understanding. I believe they got this one right. Don't just concentrate on your appearance. Don't just concentrate on the externals. Rather, your primary focus should be on the internal. Now, there have been groups who have taken this passage and taught that women should not wear jewelry, not wear any makeup, and and not dress nicely. And I suppose that's fine if that's what they want to do. I don't think that's what Peter is talking about. I don't think he's ruling that out. I believe he is ruling out, listen, American Christians... He is ruling out an undue emphasis on what you look like externally to the neglect of what you look like internally. Men, we do that too. I'll talk about that in just a second. He lists three specific areas, three specific externals that women then seem to focus on, hair, jewelry, and clothes. That's interesting There was a major emphasis on adorning yourself in such a way to draw attention to yourself by excessive hairdos, ostentatious. Is hairdo still a word? (laughs) I wrote that and I thought, I don't know if that's a word. (laughs) Jewelry and expensive and attention-grabbing clothes. Again, kind of interesting. Some things never change. What percentage of commercials, advertisements deal with hair products, jewelry, and clothing? In short, what percentage deal with how you look on the outside? Again, I am not saying don't don't look nice. I'm not saying that. Don't don't. My, my wife is beautiful. She she. Start to say she's hot. She's beautiful. <laughs> but she focuses. Her focus is on the inside. Simple question. To ascertain, the emphasis is to be on the external, uh, not to be on the external, but the internal. Simple question to ascertain where you are. Probably shouldn't ask it, but hey, here goes. Do you spend as much time dressing up the inside each day as you spend dressing up the outside? Men, you can ask yourself the same question. How much time do you spend in the word and in prayer as compared at the gym? But I look good. Peter tells us in ex- An exterior emphasis results in things like braided hair, back then an ornate presentation of hair, gold jewelry, finely adorned clothing. He tells us what an interior emphasis results in. Notice, a gentle and quiet, an imperishable gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Here's the point. Who are you trying to please? Whose attention are you trying to get? When you think about it, when you come face to face with God, and that's the implication here in the sight of God, when you come face to face with him, do you think he's going to care whether you had the latest fashion and the finest jewelry? Do you think that he cares what your hair looked like? He will be looking for a gentle and quiet spirit. Remember what Samuel said, David, God doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the interior. He looks at what's in the heart. Hang with me just a moment. I'm going to take a little aside here. Woo. This is going to, I think, bring some balance to what we're talking about here. A gentle and quiet spirit. What is the mental picture you have with a gentle and quiet spirit? I know. A, 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 a weak, spineless, mindless woman. One who does not speak her mind. You know, we, things we get, we would get along a lot better if she would just be quiet. Because she, weak, is that, is that the idea here? Nothing could be further from the truth. The word gentle is the word praos. And it only appears four times in the New Testament. The first time it was used by Jesus in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. Blessed are the gentle, blessed are the pros, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek is perhaps a better word for gentle. It includes this idea of gentleness, but it is much more than that. To be meek is not to insist on your own rights, not to be pushy or selfishly assertive, not to demand your own way. And there Jesus says that of everybody, by the way, blessed are the meek men and women, for they shall inherit the earth. The word... When we think of meek, we think of weak, cowardly, spineless. Blessed are the meek, the weak, the spineless, the mushy, the pathetic. Blessed are those who have no backbone, who don't stand up for anything. Is that what Peter is saying here, is that the wife is to be this kind of person, a mealy-mouthed, subservient, spineless, mindless person? Is that right? And the answer is clearly no. The word praos in extra biblical literature, um, it gives us a good picture of what the word means. It's there speaks of a wild animal, a wild stallion or a lion, for example, that has been tamed before it was useless. It was of little value running into fences, kicking, biting, causing all kinds of problems. But once it had this wild stallion has been tamed, it has become useful to the master. I'm talking God, by the way. Now, when you think of a wild animal, such as a horse or a lion, being tamed, you think of it as being weak or powerless. No. Rather, it is power. This is the definition of pros. It is power under control. Remember that I said, that's pros. There are four times that the word is used. Here in 1 Peter, Matthew chapter 5, when it describes blessed people, and two other times when it is used to describe Jesus himself. Once in Matthew 21, at the triumphal entry, when he was riding into Jerusalem on the cult of a donkey, we read that he was gentle. He was meek. By the way, we also find that the very next thing that he did, when he rode into Jerusalem on the cult of a donkey, meek and gentle, mild, all of that, he went in and drove the money changers out of the temple. That's Pra'as. Power under control. Then the only other time it is used in the New Testament is when Jesus gave a description of himself. Of all of the things that Jesus could have said about himself, he chose this word. He could have said, "Hey, I am power. I'm all powerful. I'm omniscient. I'm omnipotent. I can use a lot of big theological terms that you don't know. I'm faithful. I'm loving. I'm wrathful. I'm just." He he could have said that, but he didn't. The only time he gave a self-description, he said, "Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am pros. I am gentle." Meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When Peter is telling you, ladies, to be gentle and quiet, he's not telling you to be mindless, spineless, and powerless. He is telling you to be power under control. He is telling you to be like Jesus. By the way, one more quick thought. When he says gentle and quiet, the idea of quiet is peaceful. Cultivate a calming, peaceful influence in your family. One said it this way, while the husband as the head determines the direction of the home, you as the wife determine the atmosphere of the home. Don't contribute to the chaos. Strive to provide balance, peace, calmness, and security. Make your home a place where your husband and your children like to be because it is peaceful. Peaceful. Very quickly, we come to our last point. I'm about done. Emulate the holy women of the past, not the unholy women of the present. Peter cites the example of Sarah. I want you to think about that. Sarah was far from perfect. She made a number of costly mistakes Some very serious, but the testimony of Scripture is that she was a holy and godly woman proven by her actions and her attitude. She demonstrated a submissive spirit in her actions by obeying her husband, that's what it says, and in her attitude by calling him Lord. Now, before anyone gets all excited about that, don't you dare go home and tell your wife you need to call me Lord. The term Lord was simply an expression of honor and respect. In fact, Peter is quoting Genesis 18 Sarah is not calling him Lord. She is referring to him as Lord. She's told by the Lord and the two angels that come, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And by the way, a year from now, Sarah, you're going to have a baby. Am I going to have this pleasure when my master, my Lord, is so old? That's the context. So you can call him, if he makes you call him Lord, say, well, you're an old Lord. Am I supposed to have any pleasure from this relationship? Don't get carried away with that. But she did demonstrate obedience, and she did demonstrate a respectful attitude. So how, so emulate the holy women of the past, not the unholy women of the present. Let me ask you, who do you want to be like? Who makes you swoon? Some airbrush celebrity? Say this very gently. Some talent who can sing and dance seductively with virtually no clothes on at halftime fill in any present day cultural female icon who does not know the Lord is that who we're striving to be like how about Sarah Zipporah Abigail, Deborah, Mary, Martha Mary Magdalene, Priscilla, Dorcas you say I don't even, they've even heard of some of them well you should They are just a few of the holy women of the Bible whose character you should emulate. And in doing so, you become children of Sarah. This is so interesting to me. Much like Abraham is the father of faith, for all of us, Sarah becomes the mother of the submissive, godly, faithful wives. You become like her, doing what is right, and she was told she was going to have a child, and in fact, she's going to have children as numerous as the sands of the seashore, and here some of them are. Don't... Preach the word, live the word. Don't accentuate the externals. Focus on developing the internals. Don't emulate the ungodly women of today. Emulate the holy women of scripture. This is the picture that Peter paints of the submissive wife. Now, as we close this morning, I'm done. I know something about some of you. I know that your marriage is a wreck. Maybe it isn't a wreck, but it needs some serious work. And here I am, This week and next time, talking about wives and husbands. And some of you are sitting there hoping that your spouse will listen. Let me say gently, that's the problem. Maybe you need to listen. If you are like most people, then you look at the other person as the problem in your marriage. You may acknowledge that you have some changes to make, but the real problem you would tell me lies with my husband or with my wife. And you've been waiting for, for, for us to get to this text, and maybe they'll listen and change. And I just want you to know if that's your attitude, the sermon today and the sermon next time will only magnify their faults because you are listening for what the other person is supposed to do the only way this will work is if you listen for what you need to do. Do not worry about your husband, not your job. Do not worry about your wife. Focus on what you need to do and then as this passage says, watch God do a work in your spouse's life. And if your spouse doesn't change What's the worst that can happen? You end up being the husband or the wife that God has called and enabled you to be. You end up being more like Jesus.